Um, if you guys can turn with me to Romans 4, 1 through 12. It's the sixth book in the New Testament. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Um, we are going to continue our study in the book of Romans together this morning. And this morning, as Amber just read, we come to chapter 4. And um, before we, we dive into our passage this morning, though, I want to take just a minute to reorient us on where we are in the flow of the book as a whole. Because one of the struggles of preaching through a book like Romans is, is not losing track of the flow of thought of the book as you go. Like Paul wrote this as a letter to be read all at once. And so he has somewhere that he's going with everything that he's saying, and it all builds on each other. And, and so in a book like Romans, though, at the same time, there's, there's all this beauty and depth in what Paul says in this letter that it is right and good to slow down and dig in and think deeply on what he's saying and unpack those things like we've been doing. And we're going to continue to do that. But if we're not careful, the, the separation that happens by thinking about these verses this week and then several days later thinking about the next verses and then doing that over weeks and months before you get to where all this is headed, you begin to get so focused on each individual puzzle piece that you lose sight of the, the picture that the pieces go together to make. And so especially with a book like Romans that has so much theological depth and that we use verses from Romans to establish really important theological truths, we end up getting really familiar with passages from Romans outside of their context in Romans. And so when we come across them, we think, oh, I, I know what this is about. This is about this theological issue. And we can begin to think that that's all Romans is, is a theology textbook. And we stop asking, but why is this here? Like, what is Paul trying, what, what point is Paul trying to make here? And so our passage this morning is one of those parts of Romans where if you're familiar with the Bible or if you've been around church for any length of time, you're probably going to at least be somewhat familiar with this and, and think like, oh yeah, like this is the justification by faith passage. And, and it is that. that, that's really important. And it's a beautiful truth that we're going to dig into this morning. But Paul is doing more here than just trying to teach the, the doctrine of justification by faith. And so we need to be reminded of the context of Romans 4 so that we can hear what Paul is saying in these verses. And so if, if you remember all the way back to when we started the book of Romans together, we talked about the problem in the church at Rome and the purpose of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And so if you remember, the problem was that in the church in Rome, you had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and they were in conflict with each other. And so you had Jewish Christians who were convinced that they were better than the Gentile Christians because they were God's special chosen people, and they're offended that the Gentile Christians weren't doing things their way. 
And then on the other side, you got Gentile Christians who are convinced that they're better than the Jewish Christians because God was obviously done with the Jews because of their disobedience, and they're offended that the Jews would impose their way of doing things on them. And so Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome to deal with this conflict, and his main goal is to silence the boasting and superiority going on in the church and to call the believers to live in unity with one another. And so all these theological truths that he brings up in the first 11 chapters of Romans aren't just for the purpose of teaching a theology class. Like the point is that these truths that we've seen over the past few weeks about how everyone is equally guilty and condemned before God and how everyone is equally justified as a gift and the other truths that we're going to see in these chapters ahead should humble both the Jewish and the Gentile believers in the church and change the way that they live. And that's something we need to be reminded of and confronted with um, today as well. Like our issue might not be conflict between Jews and Gentiles in the church, but we're surrounded right now with other things that threaten to divide us just as significantly. Republican versus Democrat, mask versus no mask, Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. And if you just open Twitter real quick, you can probably find about a thousand other battles going on as well. And, and whichever side of those issues you come down on, the tendency on both sides is to do exactly what the Jews and Gentiles were doing in the book of Romans um, when Paul wrote to them. Like our tendency is to do the exact same thing, to look down on those on the other side of that issue, to see ourselves as superior to them and to be offended by them. And so as we get into Romans 4 and all this talk about Abraham and circumcision and uh, even though the conflict that we're facing today is maybe rooted in a different issue, the main point of this book and, and the specific section that we're in today is still relevant for us today as it was for Paul's original audience in Rome. Like, we need to be humbled that we are all equally condemned before God, and we need to be humbled that we're all equally justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And like that doesn't mean then that the differences that we have on these different issues aren't important and that we should just ignore them um, and, and just preach the gospel. Like the gospel has implications on how we live and how we follow Jesus that we need to talk about. That's Romans 12 to 16, like we're going to get there. But, but before we can have those conversations, our hearts first need to be confronted and convicted and humbled and transformed by the gospel. Like only once our boasting has been silenced by the gospel can we actually listen to each other and love one another in spite of our differences and help each other grow in obedience as we follow Jesus together. Uh, and, and like in that, like do you see the beautiful picture then that that presents to the world of what God has done? Like he's taken people from all these different backgrounds and united us together across lines that the world can't understand how those people could possibly love each other and live as a family together. Like especially in a polarized time like we find ourselves in now, like what an incredible witness to the power of God that is. And so the, the point of what we're going to see here in Romans 4, 1 through 12 is exactly that. All of this is, is, Paul's, is part of Paul's goal to silence our boasting and our superiority against each other in the church. And so I doubt like, yeah, you look at Romans 4 and what he covers in here. I doubt any of you spent this past week like really wrestling with whether Abraham ought to be able to boast about his righteousness or about what point he was circumcised and came in here this morning thinking like, oh man, I'm so glad we're going to get those questions answered today. But, but hopefully now you can see why these things matter and why this passage matters for us. Like what we're going to see in this passage are two ways that Abraham silences our boasting and our superiority. And this passage, it breaks down into two main sections. The first section runs from verse one through verse eight. The second section runs from verse 9 to verse 12. And, and you can see on your handout here, what we're going to see in verses 1 through 8 is first that none of us earns a righteous verdict from God by anything we do. God gives it as a gift to those who trust him to do what he promises. And then what we're going to see in verses 9 through 12, um, and I, I changed the wording on this one just slightly. So on your handout there, cross out who we are and write what family we come from right above that. And so the point is, none of us earns a righteous verdict from God by what family we come from. 
God makes everyone who believes one new family of faith. And so what Paul is doing here in all this is he's proving the point that he made last week, that we have no room to boast because justification is a gift from God by faith rather than by works for all people. He's going to use Abraham to show that since his justification was based on faith rather than works, the connection to Abraham that ultimately matters is not being his physical descendant, but being his spiritual descendant by sharing in his faith, which means that both believing Jews and believing Gentiles are Abraham's children by faith and share in the covenant blessings in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And so for us, the reality that our justification is a gift from God apart from works, and that we're now united as one family of faith, this this should humble us. Uh, It should destroy our temptation toward boasting and superiority toward one another in the church. So let's look at the first way then that Abraham silences our boasting and superiority. Uh, You can see this again on your handout here. None of us earns a righteous verdict from God by by anything we do. God gives it as a gift to those who trust him to do what he promises. That's, that's the point of verses one through eight here. So let's look at verses one to three. And first we're gonna see that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. That's the first thing that Paul's gonna say here, um, starting chapter four, verse one. It says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the the question then that Paul is asking here at the beginning of verse 1, it feeds off the passage that we looked at last week in chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Paul made some big claims in those verses, if you were here with us and, and listened to the sermon last week. First, he said that justification, which if you remember from last week, we said is being legally declared righteous, it's, it's a courtroom term. It's the judge passing a verdict, and the verdict is righteous. Does it mean that the person is, is made righteous? It's not a change in their nature. Uh, it's a change in their status. They were under a guilty verdict before, and now they've been legally declared righteous. It means that God has acquitted believers of all charges that could be brought against them for their sins. Paul says that this is a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Jesus took our sin on himself. He paid our debt with his blood so that we could be given a verdict of righteous. And he said that this righteous verdict is apart from the law. It's not something we earn by anything that we can do. Like we're we're already guilty. Like no amount of good works or law keeping now is going to change that. Instead, this righteous verdict comes by relying on Jesus' sacrifice in our, in our place. So that was the first claim that Paul made at the end of chapter 3. The, the, the righteous verdict that we need is by faith, not by works. It's a gift. It's not something we can earn. And then second, he said that this is true for everyone. It's true for both Jews and Gentiles. So, so since there's only one God, and he's the God of both Jews and Gentiles, then both Jews and Gentiles are justified before God the same way. And so because of all that, because we're justified by, as a gift by faith, not by works, and since all humanity is justified the same way, no one has any right to boast. All our boasting is finished if those things are true. And so what the question here at the beginning of chapter four is asking is, well, what about Abraham? Like, does Abraham disprove or contradict the point of chapter three, 21 to 31, that justification is by faith rather than by works and that all people are justified the same way? And it makes sense to ask this question for a couple of reasons. One is because of who Abraham was, right? Like he was the, he was the physical forefather of the Jewish people. God had given to Abraham certain promises that had been understood to apply only to his physical descendants. And so the Jews saw themselves as God's special chosen people because of their relationship to Abraham. So so that's one reason why it makes sense to ask this question. The other is because of what Abraham did. Like in the minds of the Jewish people in particular, they looked to, to Abraham as an example of obedience to God especially in the story when he was tested by being called to offer his son Isaac. 
Um, so in their minds, Abraham was righteous because he obeyed the Lord. Like that was the connection that they made in their minds. So, so what Paul is going to do here is first tackle the issue of Abraham's obedience or works. And then second, he's going to tackle the issue of Abraham's identity. And so the first question here is whether Abraham was righteous because of his own obedience. Was he righteous because of what he did? That's, that's what Paul says there in verse 2. Like, if Abraham was justified by works, he has every right to boast. He has every right to, to boast about earning his own righteousness. And that would invalidate what Paul had just said at the end of chapter 3. But Paul says here in these verses that Abraham can't boast because Abraham wasn't justified by works. He's not the model of obedience. He's the model of faith. He was justified by faith, not by works. And so to prove this, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6 there in verse 3, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so that statement there comes kind of in the middle of the story of Abraham in Genesis. Like God had first spoken to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when he called Abraham to leave the land where he was living and to leave his father's house because God was going to give him his own land and make him into his own great nation. And so at that time when God called Abraham um, to follow him, like there was nothing special about Abraham that caused God to do that. Like he was just a random person living in a pagan land that God chose to be the beginning of a people that he would use to move his plan of redemption forward. And the thing is, at, at the time that God called Abraham to follow him, he's already 75 years old. And his wife, Sarah, was already 65 years old, and they didn't have any children. So that's going to make this whole great nation thing a little bit of a challenge, right? Like, and so, but in spite of how crazy all that must have sounded to Abraham, like he, he did it. We don't get a whole lot of detail or explanation in Genesis 12 here. God just comes to Abraham, says, go here. I'm going to do these things for you. And the next verse says, so Abraham went. And, and over the next couple of chapters, we see that God begins to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham. Abraham goes to the land that God promised to give him. God begins to bless those who bless Abraham. He begins to curse those who curse him. But there's one problem. Like he still doesn't have any children. And so in chapter 15, where this verse comes from, God is coming to Abraham again, and he tells him, I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to reward you, Abraham. And Abraham's response to this is it's kind of surprising in the moment. He, he, like, he talks back to God. He challenges God. He's, he's like, what are you going to give me? Like, what, you're going to give me stuff? Like, what are you going to give me? Because like, you haven't even given me any children yet. Right now, the one who's going to inherit whatever little I leave behind is one of my servants, is what Abraham says to God. And but God's response to Abraham is, well, no, that's not how this is going to go. Abraham, your servant isn't going to be your heir. I'm, I'm going to give you a son. And not just one son, but he, he takes Abraham outside and he tells him to look up at the stars and try to count them. And so like, oh, if you've ever been away from the city at night and seen the stars, it's just, it's overwhelming. There, there's no way you could ever count them all. And God's showing Abraham this picture of all these stars in the sky. He's like, you see all those stars, Abraham? Your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to be like that. And then we come to our verse. God says to Abraham, your offspring are going to be as uncountable as the stars in the sky. Even though you're already past 75, you don't even have one son. Like, the point is, it's, it's this totally impossible thing, right? Like, Abraham knew that there was no way that he could make this happen by his own effort. Like, he hadn't even been able to have one child. To have an uncountable number of offspring was impossible for him. But what happens? Genesis 15, 6 says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham just believes that God's going to do for him what he promised. God, God says, I'm going to do this impossible thing for you that you could never do for yourself. And Abraham says, okay, I believe you. I'm going to rely on you to do that for me. And it says that God counted it to him as righteousness. We're, we're going to see this language of counting all through the rest of this passage. It's, it's an accounting term of crediting something to someone's account. So Abraham believed God, and God credited Abraham's account with righteousness. And so, like, here's the thing. 
we could get way off into the weeds on this really, really easily. And I wanted to so badly as I'm preparing for this morning. But, but, but the thing is, like in this passage, Paul's point is not to explain how exactly this worked. It's just that Abraham didn't do anything to earn or deserve the righteousness that God counted to him. Like God just gave it to him as a gift. God chose Abraham promised to do things for him that he could have never done for himself. And Abraham just believed that God was going to do these impossible things that God promised to do for him. And like, that's faith. And, and that's Paul's point. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. So Abraham doesn't contradict Paul's point that no one can boast because Abraham can't boast either. That's the point. And so here's the difference between work and faith. And we're going to see this in verses four and five. You can see this on your handout here. Here's the difference between work and faith. Working relies on your own ability. Faith relies on the ability of another. That's the difference. Working relies on your own ability. Faith relies on the ability of another. Look at Romans 12, four and five here, and we'll see how Paul illustrates this. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So verse four is an illustration from everyday life. Like when someone works, they earn wages. They earn a paycheck, right? Like we all know how that works. Like when you take a job, you agree to either a certain hourly wage or a certain salary to do the job that you're agreeing to do. And so you do the work, and then you expect to get paid the wages that you agreed to. And, and then when you get your paycheck, you don't think, wow, that was so nice of them to credit this money to my account. Like, no, it's not a gift. They owe you that money because of the work you did. Like, you earned it. That's how paychecks work. But that's not how justification works. Justification is a present not a paycheck. Like you don't earn it. You can't earn it. It's every bit as impossible as uh, for us to earn the righteous verdict from God as it was for Abraham, 75-year-old Abraham, who had no children to make himself into a great nation as uncountable as the stars. Every bit is impossible. Like the only way that we can receive this righteous verdict from God that we need is as a gift that he credits to our account. But even that seems impossible because like we talked about last week, it's not just for a judge to acquit someone who's guilty. And God is a just judge. Like he hates injustice. Like Proverbs 17, 15 says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Exodus 23, 7, God says, I will not acquit the wicked. So what are we going to do? Like, this is impossible for two reasons. We can't earn it. And to be just, God can't just give it to us. But what we saw last week is that God made a way to solve both of those problems. God made a way to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Like Jesus lived the obedient life that you and I and everyone else failed to live. Like we are all equally guilty. Jesus alone is innocent. But then he went to the cross and he shed his blood to satisfy God's wrath on our sin and pay the redemption price so that we could be acquitted and receive a righteous verdict. Like through Jesus, God has promised to do the impossible for you, just like he did for Abraham. You cannot ever do enough to earn a righteous verdict from God. But God says, I'll give it to you because of what Jesus did in your place. I'll credit his righteousness to your account. And what makes someone a Christian is believing that. It's hearing those impossible promises and saying, okay, I believe you. I'm going to rely completely on you to do that for me because I can't do it for myself. Like we don't earn justification by working and relying on our own ability. We receive it as a gift when we rely on the ability of another, of Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice and his righteousness being credited to our account. And so we'll, we'll come back to this at the end when we talk about how we should respond to all this. But the point in drawing all this out 
is that this should silence our boasting and our superiority. Like, it should humble us. Oh, if you're a Christian, you didn't do anything to earn a righteous verdict from God. You received it as a gift, so you have nothing to boast about over anyone else. Oh, and see the beauty of the gift that's been given to us, to those who believe in him who justifies the ungodly here in these next couple of verses. Like, there's two elements to it that we see in these verses, just really quickly. One that we've already been seeing along the way in verses 3 through 5. You can see this on your handout. Justification involves righteousness being counted to us. Look at verse 5 one more time, the end of verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so this is what we've been talking about all along. We don't need to spend much time about it, but, but just think about how amazing this is. Like we were guilty. We were ungodly. We were unrighteous. But God credits our account as righteous. He declares us righteous as if we had perfectly obeyed. Because Jesus perfectly obeyed in our place and his righteousness is credited to us. So justification involves that. It involves righteousness being counted to us. It also involves our sin not being counted to us. You see that next in verses 6 through 8. Justification involves not sin not being counted to us. Look at what um, he says in verses 6 through 8 here. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered, or whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So this is a quote from Psalm 32. And, and the connection that Paul's drawing is on the word counts again. Both of these passages use that word. And so Paul's connecting them up because of that. And he's saying that David talks about the same thing that Genesis does. Like he talks about righteousness being counted to us or credited to us apart from works too. But then in Psalm 32, David doesn't talk about righteousness being counted. He talks about sin not being counted. Like, do you see that there? He says it three different ways. He talks about having your lawless deeds forgiven or, or taken off your record. He talks about having your sin covered or covered up on your record and, and about having your sin not counted. Like it just doesn't even show up on your record at all. Like that's the other side of justification. There's both a positive crediting of righteousness and a negative not crediting of sin. Like that's the gift that we've been given. And oh, like that is good news. Like our record of sin has been taken away and instead we've been credited with the righteousness of another. And all this is because of Jesus. He's the one that took our sin on himself, paid the debt that we owed because of it, and he's the one whose righteousness then is credited to our record. That, that right there, that's the gift that is given to those who trust God to do what he promises. And that's the first way then that Abraham silences our boasting and superiority is by proving that none of us earns a righteous verdict from God by anything we do. God gives it to those who trust him to do what he promises. Second way then that Abraham silences our boasting in superiority flows out of the first. You can see this again on your handout. None of us earns a righteous verdict from God by what family we come from. God makes everyone who believes one new family of faith. So Paul has addressed now how it wasn't anything Abraham did that earned him a righteous verdict from God. But the other question that needs to be addressed for Paul's audience was, but, but he's Abraham. Like he's the father of the Jewish people, God's special chosen people. So of course God credited righteousness to his account, just like he will all of Abraham's offspring. Like that's what they would have been thinking. So is that why God credits righteousness to someone? Because of what family they come from? Because that would make one group superior to another and give them reason to boast. Like ultimately, do you have to be a Jew to receive a righteous verdict from God? And do those in that family have reason to look down on those that are not in that family? So remember, Paul claimed at the end of chapter 3 that God is the God of all people and all people are justified the same way. So does Abraham contradict that claim? Like those are the questions that Paul turns to next here in verse 9. Look at that with me. It says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that Abraham's, or that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? 
So Paul's going to connect some words up again here. And what the word he's picking up on this time is the word blessing. So verse 9 there is this blessing is playing off of what he said that David talks about this blessing. And you see David blessed, blessed, blessed. And so he's tying all that together now and picking up on that word here in verse 6 to 8. And so in one sense, blessing being used this way, just it refers to God's goodness to humanity. So it's another way to say that justification is a gift from God, which is exactly the point that Paul's been making. But in the context of what we're talking about here, blessing is also this loaded word because we're talking about Abraham and the, the language of blessing has huge Abrahamic covenant overtones. And so I mentioned verse, or Genesis 12 a little while ago in Abraham's story. Let me read a couple of verses from the beginning of Genesis 12 about the promises that God makes to Abraham there. Um, it says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God promises to bless Abraham and his family, to bless those who bless Abraham and his family and to ultimately bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. And, and this is huge because what Paul is doing, and, and this is going to become even more clear in the next few verses, but what he's doing is he's connecting this blessing of justification. Like that's the, this blessing here that he's talking about. He's going to connect that with the covenant blessings that have been promised to Abraham and to Abraham's family. And so this question here of who is this blessing for is huge. And so the way that Paul asks this question is a little bit confusing for us. But what we have to keep in mind is that circumcision was the identifying mark of Abraham's physical family. Like God told Abraham to circumcise all the males in his family to identify them as his people. And so circumcision was the identifying mark that you belong to Abraham's family. And if you belong to his family, then you join in the blessings that God promised to Abraham. And so the question is, do you have to be circumcised in the sense of being one of Abraham's physical descendants to join in on the covenant blessings that God promised to Abraham? And what Paul is going to do here is show that Abraham himself proves that that's not how it works. You can see that next on your handout there. Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. That's what we see in verses 9 and 10. So look at how Paul answers this question there at the very end of verse 10. He set all this up, and his answer is, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. So Paul says that Abraham's justification, God counting righteousness to him, didn't happen after, but actually happened long before, like years and years before he received the sign of circumcision himself. So if justification is connected to circumcision and bearing that identifying mark, then Abraham himself wouldn't have qualified. Like Abraham didn't receive the blessing of justification because of the identifying mark of circumcision. And what Paul is going to say is that it's the other way around. And you can see this next on your handout here. Circumcision identified Abraham as something he already was. It didn't make him something he wasn't. Look at verse 11. We'll see this here. He says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Abraham didn't receive the blessing of justification because he first had the identifying mark of circumcision. Paul says Abraham's circumcision was a sign. That word means that it's, it's a physical symbol that points toward a greater spiritual reality. And he says that it was a seal. It's, it's like how people used to seal a letter or an important document with hot wax and then press a seal into the wax. It, it both identified the owner of that letter or document and attested to its authenticity, but it also symbolized the closure of that letter or document. Like it was finished. It couldn't be opened or changed without breaking the seal. And Paul says that's what circumcision is about. That was the point. It didn't make Abraham something he wasn't. It identified him as something he already was. Like God gave Abraham the blessing of circumcision first, or gave him the blessing of righteousness first, and then later gave him the sign of circumcision that pointed to the righteousness that God had already given him before he was circumcised. So it's not possible to become justified because you're circumcised. That, that's not how it works. The blessing doesn't come to those who are circumcised because the identifying mark doesn't come first. The blessing comes first. And so all that 
It's hard to follow exactly what he's saying, but it says something really important. So this is, this is where we're going here. It says something really important about what ultimately identifies someone as belonging to Abraham's family and who joins then in the blessings that God promised to Abraham. You can see this next on your handout here. The ultimate identifying mark of Abraham's family is not circumcision, but faith. Oh, look at this in the rest of verse 11 and 12 here. It says the purpose of this, the purpose of how Abraham received justification first and circumcision later, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Ah, and this is so good. Like, follow what he's saying here. Like, Abraham was given the blessing of righteousness being counted to him before being circumcised for this purpose. And the purpose then has two parts. And so the first part is in verse 11. It says, to, purpose word, to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Like, so, oh, do you see what that means? Like, it means that Abraham received the blessing when he was uncircumcised so that he could be the father of everyone who believes without being circumcised, meaning Gentile Christians. And so the purpose of that is so that they could join in the covenant blessing given to Abraham's children so that they could have righteousness counted to them as well. That's the first part of the purpose. Then the second part is in verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Abraham received the blessing when he was uncircumcised so that he could be the father of those who believe without being circumcised. And he was circumcised so that he could be the father of the circumcised who walk in the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised, meaning Jewish Christians. So they're not left out either. They're included too, but not because they share in Abraham's circumcision, but because they share in Abraham's faith. Like, oh, so huge. Like to be a son of Abraham in this sense has nothing to do with circumcision or uncircumcision. Like that's a totally separate issue. What identifies someone as a son of Abraham is believing that God will do what he said he will do for you like Abraham did. So the point is that none of us earns a righteous verdict from God by what family we come from. God makes everyone who believes one new family and the ultimate identifying mark of this one new family is faith not being circumcised or uncircumcised, not being a Jew or Gentile, but believing that God will do what he promised to do for you and relying on him instead of anything you do. And Abraham is the father of everyone who belongs to this new family of faith. Like like that idea of Abraham as father bookends this, this whole section of Romans that we've just been looking at. Like at the beginning, the focus was on Abraham being the forefather of the Jews according to the flesh. But then here at the end, we see that Abraham is ultimately the forefather of all who believe, which means that everyone in this family of faith joins in the covenant blessings promised to Abraham. Like he's our forefather according to the faith. And so do you remember what the promise was then? Going back to what we talked about before. Look at the stars, Abraham. I'm going to give you as many children as the stars in the sky. They'll be as uncountable as the stars. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this new family of faith then, made up of Jews and Gentiles who've been given the blessing of righteousness, being counted to us through through Christ, is the fulfillment of all those promises to Abraham then. Like Abraham believed that God would do that impossible thing for him. And now we get to be part of how God is fulfilling that promise that Abraham believed. Oh, so good. So that though, that's the second way that Abraham silences our boasting and superiority in the church. Like not only did we not do anything to earn the righteous verdict that God gave us as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, We also didn't receive it because of what family we came from. Instead, we all, from all the different families that we came from, are made one new family of faith together with all who believe, like our father Abraham, 
with all who rely on Jesus' righteousness counted to us. So there's nothing then that makes any of us better than anyone else. Our boasting and superiority then is finished. It's destroyed. It's completely silenced. So in light of that, like how should we respond to all this? That's, that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. And oh man, there's, there are a lot of applications that we could get into here from this passage. Um, in the time we have left, let me just touch on three. Um, first of all, you can see this on your handout here. Number one, stop trying to justify yourself by your own works and believe that God justifies the ungodly through Jesus. So first, like if, if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, um, if your hope for being right with God has anything to do with anything that you have done, um, if you've never believed in him who justifies the ungodly in the way that we've been talking about this morning, uh, I want to plead with you this morning to respond in this way to this passage. Like you cannot earn righteous verdict from God by your own works. Like you can't do it. You're guilty. You're ungodly. You're unrighteous. You cannot do enough good works to ever undo that. If you try to earn anything from God, like he will pay you. But we're going to see in a couple of chapters in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. Like that's the paycheck that you've earned by your work. But God has promised, he said, that he'll do the impossible for you. Like he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to live the perfectly obedient and righteous life that you have failed to live. And he's paid your ransom price and satisfied God's wrath toward you by shedding his blood on the cross. He died to pay the debt you owe. And so because of that, God can credit Jesus' righteousness to your account and declare you righteous. He can forgive and cover and not count your sin to your account. And he'll, he'll do that for you. And so the question is, like, will you lay down any attempt to earn a righteous verdict from God? And will you instead, will you, will you just believe that God will do the impossible for you? Like, oh, believe that this morning. And, and you can pray to him right now. Tell him that you believe. Like I'm praying and I've been praying. So I prepare that God would open eyes in this room this morning to see the beauty of the gospel and, and, and to believe. And so, oh, if that's you, if, you're, if you are believing that for the first time this morning, like we'd love to talk to you after the service. Just come find me, find one of the other elders. Just, I mean, just grab somebody even right around you. Any of us would love to talk to you and tell you more about what to do next. Um, same time, I, so that applies to those this morning that, that are not Christians, that have never placed their faith in Jesus, that are trying to earn righteousness in some other way. But I think same time before we move on, this, re- this response applies to us Christians as well, at least at some level. Like we can be so tempted to live now like our justification depends on our own works. Like, like we have to earn God's blessing and favor even though he's already given it to us. And in one sense, that's another sermon than the one I just preached. But I think at least mentioning it under, under this point here is, is worthwhile. Like Christian You've been counted righteous already in Christ. Like, believe that. Rely on that. And let that free you from living like you have to earn a righteous verdict from God every day. Second, then, you can see this next on your handout there. Be humbled by your inability to ever earn a righteous verdict from God and that he would freely give it to you anyway. Like, That's the ultimate point that Paul's making in the first eight verses there, verses one to eight. And and it's so interesting because we're so tempted to do the exact opposite with passages like this, right? Like we're so tempted to study the theology in a passage like this and then turn around and use it against each other, to use it to feed our boasting and superiority rather than kill it. And and the truth of justification by faith here in Romans 4, that is intended to do that. It's intended to humble us. It's intended to silence our boasting hearts, not feed them and stir them up. And so let it do that to you this morning. The fact that you and I could never do anything to earn a righteous verdict from God ought to be humbling enough. Like we're, we're helpless. Helpless people don't have anything to boast about. But 
but then you add to that the shocking, stunning, impossible truth that God has made a way to be both just and the one who justifies the ungodly through Christ and that he freely gives that to us as a gift. Like, oh, that should just blow our superiority to smithereens. Like, instead of being characterized by the same kind of pride and arrogance and conflict and looking for every opportunity to show how smart and right we are and how wrong everyone else is that characterizes this polarized time that we find ourselves in, like, we should be characterized by humility and thankfulness and joy and patience. Uh, like this doesn't mean that we won't ever disagree with each other and we won't ever see anything differently than each other. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't wrestle through those things together, but it should completely transform the, the tone of those conversations, especially within the church, which leads to the last point on your handout here, which is the, the third response that this passage calls for. You can see that on your, on your handout. Be humbled that you're part of the family of faith that will receive the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. And like, this is the point of verses nine to 12. We should be humbled that we're part of this family of faith made up from people from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's, it, it's so easy to walk into the church with a sense of deserving to be here and shock at how those other people got in. Like, it should be the other way around. Like, we should be so incredibly humbled that we get to be a part of this. Like, none of us are superior to anyone else in this family. We are all equally guilty. We've all been equally justified as a gift, and we've now been made one new family of faith. And so, like, that means a few things. Yeah, one, here's just a few things I think this means for us. One, the church is going to be made up of different people. Like, I know this is surprising, but we're not all the same. Um, we don't come from the same backgrounds. We don't have the same likes and interests. And we aren't always going to agree on everything because of that. And so if we come into the church expecting a group of people that are all just like us, we're going to be disappointed and we're going to be pretty frustrated. Instead, like we should come in humbled that we get to be a part of this. Like our, our diversity is part of the beauty of what God is doing and redeeming a people from, for himself. And it highlights his power and glory that a group of people that the world cannot understand why they would all gather together, not only to meet every Sunday, but to love each other and live like a family. Like, I mean, you think about the membership covenant we just read together, that a group of people that are as different as the group of people in this room would commit to do those things for each other is just shocking. And it doesn't make any sense to the world around us. And that what is, adds to the beauty of what goes on in this room. And it gets to the second thing that this means. Like, we're one family then. Like, that's what we're just saying then, is we're, we're supposed to live like a family. We're one family. And so, like, family, we're stuck with each other, right? Like, you might have some people that, in your family that drive you crazy, um, but they're still family and you're stuck with them. Like, they're still going to be there on th at Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know? And, and, like, I'm kidding, and that's supposed to be funny, but the reality is, like, we, we act like that in the church so often, like certain people rub us the wrong way or drive us crazy. And so then we do our best to, to avoid them. And we talk about them instead of talking to them. And sometimes we even move to a whole other church to get away from that person or those people and to find a group of people who are a whole lot more like me. But like that completely misses the point of what the church is then. Like that, that's, that's not what makes the church the church. We're one new family made up of people from all nations. And so instead of grouping up with people just like us and feeding each other's sense of superiority over the people, over the people that are different than us, like we should humbly lean into the differences that we have between each other and listen to each other and learn from each other and sharpen each other which I would say is the third thing that I think that this means is, is that being, being humbled that we're part of this family of faith ought to change the way that we interact with each other when we have differences. Like since we're family, we can't just ignore the hard conversations that our differences will stir up, 
Like if we do, they're just going to fester and, and that conflict is going to grow under the surface until it finally blows up and creates a big mess. Like you can't do that in a family. You can't just ignore when something's going on. You've got to deal with it. But that's too often the way that we want to deal with our differences. Like we want to just pretend that they're not there as long as possible or at least not talk about them with the people we disagree with. Instead, go find some people that we do agree with and talk with them about it. But again, like we can't do that with family. And so instead, because we're family, it, it ought to free us up to have the hard conversations that we need to have. Be, because we're family, we're committed to each other. Again, we just, we just read all the commitments that we made. Like we've committed these things to each other. We should be able to talk humbly through the things that are different between us, knowing that we're not going to give up on each other and we're not going to cancel each other. Like we should be able to give each other grace and the benefit of the doubt, knowing that we're all still learning. And so just like the diversity of our community should be something that the world can't understand, our, our humility and patience with one, other, one another in wrestling through differences together should stand out in this polarized, emotionally charged time as well. And so again, like that doesn't mean that our differences are unimportant. Doesn't mean that some of us shouldn't ultimately see things differently than we do and even change our position on some things. But it does mean that our ultimate identity isn't in our positions on any of those things. So that's not how we should look at each other. It means that our love for one another as a family and our humility at being part of this family should characterize how we handle our differences within the family. And so oh, all that to say, like, we should be humbled at what we get to be a part of and being part of the family of faith and of this specific church where we get to live out that family relationship while we wait for the ultimate fulfillment of the promises that God has made to us. And, and there shouldn't be any boasting or superiority among us. Uh, and that's my prayer for us today is just that this passage would do that in our hearts. It, it even has, as we're listening to it together this morning, that's humbled us this morning and that our hearts and our relationships in the church would be characterized more and more by humility in light of these truths. Would you pray with me? Father, pray that you would humble us with these things. Um, these, are, these are hard things to hear. They're hard things to say, and they're hard things to hear. Um, and my fear is that it could actually do the opposite of what you intend for it to do in our hearts and for what I pray that it does in our hearts this morning. God, don't let it harden our hearts. Don't let it cause us to, to bow up and, and push back and um, argue back against these things. But Lord, I pray that instead that, that you would humble our hearts with these truths. Humble our hearts, Father, that we can do nothing to earn our righteous verdict that we desperately need from you, but that you gave it to us freely. Father, thank you for making a way to be just and the one who justifies the ungodly through Jesus. And, and Lord, give us hearts that believe that you'll do that impossible thing that you promised to, to do for us. Lord, we, we believe that. That's, that's why, that's what makes us Christians is that we believe it and that you've credited that righteousness to our accounts. But Lord, I pray that that would continue to characterize us, that we would be people that cling to that, that rely on that, that our hope is in that, and that, that it just humbles our hearts, Father. Lord, I pray just that some would even believe that for the first time this morning. Lord, that there would be some in this room that they're hearing this and maybe they just never understood it this way before, or maybe this is the first time they've even walked into the church and all this is new, but Lord, would you open eyes in this room this morning, cause people to believe, to, to hear that the impossible promise and, and to just say, okay, I believe it. I'm, I'm gonna put all my hope in that. Lord, would you, would you even rescue some people, justify some people here this morning in light of this message? Lord, and then humble all of us that we've been included in this family of faith. Lord, let our relationships with one another be characterized by humility especially where we have differences. And I know that there's a lot of them that we're all struggling with right now. But Lord, instead of our differences driving each other apart, Lord, would you humble us and draw us together so that our unity in the middle of our differences ultimately becomes a display of your power. Lord, forgive us for believing and acting like we deserve any of this. Uh, remind us again this morning of just the stunning gift that we've been given in Christ and humble us with these things this morning. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.